Generative AI, it's one of the most disruptive technologies humans have ever created. We're living in a time of unprecedented exponential change. What will we create with infinite leverage? You're going to need to know what these tools do and plan accordingly. If we can't do it here, where can we do it? I'm excited for the potential of AI, not only uh, you know, in Vancouver, but globally. It is going to take a village. All of us are going to have a role to play in building a more prosperous future for all of us. Welcome to Conversations Live. AI, friend or foe. Tonight we come to you from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish First Nations who have lived on and continue to call these lands home. Hachka. Tonight we're going to dig into AI. Is it really intelligent? It most certainly isn't artificial. It's real. We have an impressive panel that will help us peel back the layers of what is a mystery to me, machine learning, and they'll help us all determine how we will be living with AI going forward. Now, just before we begin, I'm going to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. They really do. Without them, we wouldn't be doing this. Our presenting sponsors are KPMG and RBC. Our event sponsors are Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, and Beattie, the Port of Vancouver, the Digital Technology Supercluster, Research Co., and our media partner is the Vancouver Sun, which we are live netcasting onto right now. Our supporters are BCIT and Canadian Beef, and I want to especially thank Apogee Public Relations and give a big shout out to the team at Old Boy Productions, the crew who are experts in live online and virtual production events just like this one, as well as live press conferences. Now, one last thing for anyone who wishes to pose a question. Please go to slido.com, enter the password conversations and send in your question. Now, whether you're watching us online or if you're here in the audience and you want to send in a question, please do so through Slido. And then Sean, our Slido master here, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us. And while we won't be able to get to them all verbatim, your questions will help to inform me and others about topics and questions that we'll be asking this evening. So to further set the stage, here is Mario Canseco of Research Co, who just conducted a poll about opinions on and about AI for Conversations Live. Samaya, can you please roll that uh, video, Mario's video? Canadians have become more aware about the development of artificial intelligence. In the last year, three in five Canadians have followed news stories related to AI very closely or moderately closely. Canadians aged 18 to 34 and aged 35 to 54 are significantly more likely to have focused more intently on AI than their counterparts aged 55 and over. There is no clear consensus among Canadians about what AI ultimately means for humanity. While 46% regard it as a threat, 40% see it as an opportunity. The two notions are essentially tied in British Columbia and in Quebec, whereas residents of Ontario and Alberta currently hold more negative views on AI and its future effect. We also have 14% of Canadians who are not sure about what AI will bring at this point. At least 7 in 10 Canadians are concerned about three possible outcomes related to AI, causing an event that leads to the loss of human life, 
its implementation leading to less intelligent students at schools and universities, and AI taking over jobs currently performed by humans. The notion of AI essentially replacing human workers is a bigger concern for women, Canadians age 55 and over, and those who voted for the new Democratic Party in the 2021 federal election. More than half of Canadians believe humanity should be more cautious when dealing with AI and call for the creation of these tools to be slowed down. For 20% of Canadians, the development of AI should carry on as quickly as possible, while only 13% would choose to abandon AI altogether. As expected, Canadians aged 18 to 34 are more likely to favor the speedy expansion of AI, while their older counterparts are not as convinced. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. It is now my pleasure to introduce you to our distinguished panel. From the BD School of Business, Terry Griffiths. Griffith. From the Digital Technology Supercluster, Eduardo DiMartin. From Microsoft, David Seymour. From KPMG, Mark Lowe. From Boralis AI, Calvin Garris. And from Circle Innovation, Dr. Sylvain Morinot. So, the speed of change in computing sciences appears to be on a Moore's Law type of trajectory, but I don't know that Moore's Law is even fast enough to explain what's happening in AI. Moore's Law was based on the idea that there would be a doubling of uh, capacity every year. AI seems to be accelerating beyond that. Now, to this point, AI is on everyone's mind. What was merely an idea posited by Alan Turing in 1950 and promoted by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick in 2001, A Space Odyssey, is real. it's real. And it has burst onto the headlines. The New York Times, oh my gosh, they've gone to town on that. So has The Economist, Fareed Zakaria, and everyone else is hyperventilating about the existential threats AI pose. Machine learning, neural networks, Intelligent algorithms are affecting how we create, learn, and interact. Movie production ground to a halt because writers worried they'd be out of work. So our mission tonight is to unravel some of the mysteries, debunk the myths, and gain a deeper understanding of the transformative power that AI wields in shaping our destiny. So the question tonight, on the eve of the introduction of Google's Gemini, is this, AI. Is it a friend or a foe? So let me turn to the panel here. And Terry, I'm going to go to you first. But the same question to everyone. What is it about AI that excites you the most and why? The thing that excites me the most is the work that we'll be able to do that we either couldn't do before, we couldn't do as efficiently before, or that we simply didn't have time to take on. And now. My biggest question is, how can I spend more time getting better at the prompts and figuring out which of the tools really is going to help me do the task the best? Are you finding that you have to figure it out, uh, that it's not intuitive? I absolutely have to figure it out. And as I look across my students who are working professionals, you know, with an average of 15 years work experience, they're having very clearly to figure it out. And there's uh, full distribution. Some folks before they walked into class had 
maybe watched over someone else's shoulder at the low end of the use curve. And then at the highest curve, I had one student who, before our first class, was offering a workshop to the rest of the students when I walked in the door. So I'm wow. getting to see the full spectrum. Mark, to you, what, what do you find in dealing with your clients from here at KPMG are the most exciting elements of AI, and why? What, what is it about those that gets you saying, okay, we're in for a good future? Well, <clears throat> I think that one of the most exciting parts of that conversation is the, the, is the exploration that clients are undergoing as they're wrestling with the technology. So similar to what Terry's referencing with their students, you know, we're, we're seeing some of those same types of uh, explorations at our clients. And you're actually getting right at the core of what do, what do jobs mean? How do we actually break up? What tasks comprise a job? How do we think about those definitions? Uh, and then, of course, there's incredible uh, you know, changes to the organization that are going to come as a consequence of these tools being adopted. So we're at the very, very early part of, this, of the adoption curve and very much in an experimentation phase. Probably not at the uh, not not nearly at, at the sort of cutting edge of where Borealis and some of these other uh, you know companies are, are have been building for some time, right? Um, but clients are experimenting, and, and we're seeing those those early use cases take hold, seeing where value can be created, and then building on those uh, on those early wins. Well, you've definitely prompted us to go to Calvin. Calvin, what uh, what excites you? Um, I think the problems that were unsolvable before that could be solvable now with AI. <clears throat> so with AI, the patterns that I can recognize and the complexity I can see to help us pursue different areas like in health science and, and research that are untractable with like, just human um, knowledge is, is, is a, a, a front of us and it's, it's really exciting. So I think it's the, the problem space is opens up uh, to um, more complex and more impactful solutions. You mentioned healthcare. That's a natural uh, segue to you, Sylvan. Uh, and not that that's the only place that you are, but when when you take a look at how AI is going to help propel uh, forward uh, our ability to deliver better healthcare solutions. Yes, uh, we are like. Um, I mean, at my position, like I can see a lot of positive to have AI um, entering healthcare. Well, first, is already in healthcare in a lot of application that that we use on daily basis. But the fact is. You know, more and more we are living longer. We want to live healthier. And to achieve that, we need actually to find another solution than the one that we have now, because right now the healthcare system is completely overburdened. So in, in healthcare, it's not going to be a choice. It's going to be a necessity for us to really apply AI. So AI is going to come at the rescue of healthcare in some ways. Eduardo, uh, and maybe you can, you just have to talk. Uh, Simone will control the volume. He's our AI. You have your own He's actually AI. our human intelligence <laughs> operating the microphone. Um, what excites you, not only in general, but also how it has applications to drive forward innovation and opportunity here in British Columbia? Well, I mean, I'll make two comments. I think one is we've already been experiencing AI. Uh, you know, we uh, predictive maintenance has been part of manufacturing for years. You know, it didn't happen because of ChatGPT. It happened because AI has been around since 1950s. Uh, we have drones that are floating uh, around fields that are able to understand where where to put fertilizer and and, and analyze that through through uh, certain algorithms. So we're already experiencing AI. So I just want to make that point. 
the second thing is where I see British Columbia to answer your question. You know, uh, in British Columbia, we have a, a you know a strong heritage of software development, and uh, you know, video games was sort of the, the kind of the first step in here. We have um, massive uh, multinationals like Microsoft and Amazon that are here. We have a healthy startup environment. What's going to happen in the AI world is we're going to start to build data products, and you can't build data products unless you understand how to build software because software people build products. Those skills that apply to software development are the same skills that are going to be required to build data products. And I see you to be well-suited uh, to actually take advantage of this. Do we have the talent base here in British Columbia to realize that? And before we get to answering that question, David, uh, also the question to you, what excites you about uh, the promise of AI and uh, especially its application here in British Columbia? Many good points raised, and I'll, I'll focus on the sort of the individual experience of work. I mean, I think that, you know, Edo's right. We've had AI for a long time. There's many kinds of AI. You wouldn't give back a lot of the AI that you touch every day. Imagine your day without autocorrect and without auto format and all the little things that smooth off all the edges and save all this time. But AI, computers automate work, and we're super comfortable with that idea. And there's a lot of jobs and work we wouldn't want to do manual anymore. We use Excel. We use these products. Um, AI automates reasoning. And that's what's new. That's what's really, really different here. But the potential there in terms of making people's jobs more interesting and richer and elevating them is there's a lot of work we still do that requires human reasoning that is repetitive and unfulfilling and not enriching. And what the opportunity, I think, is is to, is to uh, create a lot more value through more interesting jobs where we get scalers on a lot of the stuff where we can't get that work done any, every day anyway. I don't know how many of you come into work and hit it and leave with fulfilled having completed everything you wanted to do. But most of us are struggling to get in that zone and uh, I think that there's just a ton of upside to make jobs better. Okay, one of the things, when I started researching for tonight's uh, topic, uh, I started to pour myself into it, read and read and read and read and read and read. And uh, the more I read, the less I understood. Uh, I go, okay, just exactly how does this work? And how does it apply to the individual or a small business? How do we have access to AI? Sure, we can t uh, play with ChatGPT and we go, uh, help me write an introduction for tonight's uh, um, event. And I ran it up the, you know, the, the flagpole and went, yeah, yeah okay. Uh, maybe there were one or two words that I could pull out of it. What is the access point uh, for people who really want to be able to say, this is what's going to allow me to be able to make those improvements in, uh, you know, repetitive work, because uh, ChatGPT isn't going to do it. So what are entry points that the average person can say, this is how I can benefit from this? Calvin, because you're in the business of helping small and medium-sized companies do the, just that. And, I, and Eduardo, I know you do too, and same with you, Savannah. <laughs> so we're going to have a number of answers here to this question. Yeah, it sounds good. I, th I think the, the average person needs to understand like, how they can leverage <clears throat> AI individually like with tools like ChatGPT and understanding like, the prompting around it and how it can uh, really enhance and like, 10x your productivity. So there's, like, there's the, the usage of the tools. Understand how you can use, use those tools for your own personal gain and, and improving your workflow and what you do as a job. And then there's also like product builders like myself who have to look at the problem, the user need, and, and how we're going to solve it holistically using AI as part of like my tool shed to help solve it. So it's not just about AI. It's about the 
complete product. What, what unmet need are we solving for the user to make their life a little bit better at the end of the day? AI is just another kind of like software tool that we can leverage to help solve that problem. And so I think there's like a dynamic there. So is, is that in essence it? It's another software tool that we now need to be able to say this is how we're gonna train it to address challenges that we had. Similar to before we had so many programs that are in place, like Excel. Exactly, uh, yeah. I think it's like, it starts with the problem, right? So we want to solve that problem, and then, and then we apply it. And when we look at the problem first and apply it, then we have the best application of it in the product space. Mark. Well, I'm just going to build on that. I think that's a really important point. What you're touching on there is the idea of where do those tools sit within that task flow that you're working on. So the idea that ChatGPT is going to kind of writ large replace your job or to, you know, to, to tackle uh, packages of work is probably, you know, a, a misstatement. And so really the job is to figure out what are those tasks, as, as David's talking about, right? How do you think about where can I get leverage using these tools? ChatGPT is an entry point and the brilliance of ChatGPT is the accessibility of it that anybody can have access to incredibly powerful data science tools, uh, you know, whereas previously you had to be a data scientist or a software you know, engineer to, to, uh, to build on those, on those type of um, you know, capabilities. So that is an entry point, and really it's about trying to figure out, well, what are those parts of my job that I can accelerate to, to get that lift? And you know, when, you, when you apply that into an enterprise of any size, you see tremendous lift, like you know, dozens of dozens of percent of lift of, in terms of productivity, in terms of the quality of the output that we're seeing uh, you know, studies coming out now from Harvard Business Review and others that are quantifying the benefit, and it's substantial regardless of the organization's size or complexity. Digital first companies are going to be faster there, but it's going to have an uh, incredible impact. So both to David and, and Eduardo, do we have to rely on the major software uh, suppliers already adopting generative AI into the programs that they're already offering to their customers because they're able to identify what are potential problems. And when I think about this, I think about Adobe, for instance, because in our business we use Adobe every day. And every day now uh, they do a better job of um, giving me a transcription that will then turn into a closed captioning file that's acceptable to the CRTC, something that was costly and time consuming. Does it have to be companies of that kind of scale that can really be putting those kinds of applications forward? Um, and so therefore, is it limited access at this point? Um, no. Uh, I think uh, working, one of the, the, the larger companies, you know, um, you know, having worked at Microsoft, I don't want to speak for Microsoft, Dave does a better job than me. Uh, the, the reality of, of these large organizations is they, you know, provide pieces of technology that you can build upon. And so Adobe is an example where you have a very, uh, I mean, everyone uses Adobe, so there's not much options. Right? So it's Adobe. So, but in situations like, for example, in a law firm or in an accounting firm, you know, what you want to start to do is you take a large model that maybe Microsoft makes or uh, Meta makes, and then you build your vertical on top of that model. And then when I say build your vertical, your building is, a, is your own model that's safe and secure, that's meaningful to your enterprise, and that's meaningful to solve the solution for you. And I think that's the work that smaller companies can do. Um, and larger companies will do that slower and over time, and larger companies are much better at, at, uh, at accessing, uh, having access to all these data sets that a smaller company doesn't have. 
there is a concern that if uh, you know uh, one of these companies buys up you know <laughs> to many of the players that it does become you know uh, a monopoly of sort and at this point it's early early days to see but um, you know I, I, I think at this point there's lots of room for everyone to play but getting started as Terry pointed out is not necessarily intuitive nor easy so David how does Microsoft help to make it easier for clients or users yeah, I think to answer both questions, we're so early in this wave, and I, we're so tech-forward as a society. You know, before, the, when smartphones came along, you know, you saw it in someone's hand, and you said, I'll go buy one of these, I want to be part of this. Now we're getting excited about a paradigm change, and there's, you know, like, years of productization to come to actually make this stuff usable. And the amount of productization work that I'm doing, and Edo's doing, and I'm sure Mark's teams are doing, is huge. Um, and so we'll figure that stuff out. GPT is a very generic tool that anyone can go play with to learn, but it starts to become really integrated. If you're a Windows Insider, you can now try Copilot in Windows, and I believe it's rolling out in Office soon. The big, like Edo says, the bigger companies will be able to productize and activate that stuff faster. The smaller players will, will get it in the, in the time ahead. But it's very plausible for the average person in British Columbia, the first time they will have AI change their life or save time with AI, might be there's this brilliant project in Kelowna with the, the building permitting office, where it might take you a six-month backlog to get a building permit. They've trained AI to read plan drawings and know how to automate this reasoning work, right? And you may be able to get a turnaround on your building permit in one day. That would be a revolutionary experience for someone saving a lot of time. So it may not be you driving it with individual tools at the beginning, because there's so much work to do. Mm. Terry, how important is it that we don't go, oh, it seems confusing, and we step back and say, well, I'll wait for it to unfold a little bit more before I get involved? What's the, the, the danger there? Yeah, could you tell I was chomping at the bit to oh, yes, I could see. Get, a, get a word <laughs> on this? Because the human side of this is so important. And you know, we mentioned some of the data that HBR has come out with. and. What we know about people from well before the public versions of the AI is that we're not very good at sitting back and thinking about our work. You know, some of the things we've talked about tonight have been top-down AI. So if we fix the building permit process, that's a top-down AI strategic decision that an organization made and they had partners to help them do it. My angle is on the bottom-up side of it. So how do we craft our own work to be able to take on new ideas? And the trouble is, pre-AI, we know that we're not very good at that. We're not good at sitting back and saying, what are the things I do all day? And who do I do it with? And what are the tools that I have available to myself? So really, that's a starting point is, we all need to become better at thinking about how we craft our jobs with or without the AI, and then work will be a better place. But on the, on the other side of that, you can you know, begin to think about all the people around you. You're sitting in this room, so you've already made the decision that AI is something to pay attention to. And in prior uses of technology, whether it could be the cell phone or I tend to use as in my example, personal computers, it took us years to have personal computers infiltrate their way into our work. Not so much with the AI that we have available for free now from across major platforms. So while we might have been willing to watch that family member or colleague just sort of ignore the whole thing, we really, we as members of the community, can't do that with this one 
because they will lose their job and they're, they're gonna be sleeping on your couch. So you have to make that decision. So we have to look and say, how do I bring this person along? Because they'll lose their job, not to the AI, they're gonna lose it to the person who's figured out how to get three, five times, 10 times as much done as, as they did. David, I, I know that you wanna follow yeah, up here. I just wanna agree with you that the importance of learning it and the bringing all of society along, it's unbelievably important. What I, I've been fairly slow to adapt at the core of my job. I still basically do the same way and I play with these tools and learn about them. But I get to talk to young talent and like some of the bright spots, these young engineers that would typically get tasked a certain kind of work and someone's already decided what the outcome is and they go to that work. And these young bright kids will have a bunch of hypotheses. They would never have time to go run down 10,000 pages of API documentation to try three or four wild ideas, now they blast through them. They have this work assistant that brings back, and they try really advanced stuff, and they're acting like little, little architects. Same story with data scientists that'll be, you know, have a hypothesis, need a month to go run down all those queries and valid connect. So there's, that, that is really cool, that, that up-leveling of work and potential. But it, I, I agree with you that I think the younger and fresher your mind is, the more you just see it for its potential, and the more, the more you've been working a certain way for a long time, there's a lot we have to do to bring people along. Well, it's interesting in Mario's poll, he indicated that Canadians 55 and older are like, oh, I'm not so sure, slow it down, put guardrails around it. Um, maybe we really ought to take our foot off the throttle. But younger people are saying, no, this is our future. Are you finding that as well, Sylvain? Yes, I, and, and you know, I, I agree in some ways, but like, I think like the conversation has to be way bigger than just BC or Canada. Like, as a, you know, when we were like seeing the percentage where like 40% of people want to slow it down and 40% want to accelerate. The issue with that is like all the other countries are going to accelerate. So the problem is like we're not going to lose our job to AI. We're going to lose our job to the other countries that have found a way to become way more productive and introduce way more technologies. Um, able to capture way more data. For example, like, you know, a country like China collect data on every day, on every citizen, all the time. So you can imagine how much information they can filter and understand and products they can make after that and companies they can create. I think one of the challenge for us is how are we gonna support the SME structure of the Canadian society? all those small and medium enterprise and how we're gonna help them to be competitive and be able to, to be combative and fight markets on the world stage. This is an this is issue because if those companies are not able to grow and take out those markets with the help of, you know, for example, Microsoft or KPMG or others, like we, we really have to find another way to create, a, to succeed in that economy because a lot of the future of the economy is gonna be based on AI. Well, one of the elements, of course, in growing the economy is that we are uh, developing products and services that we can export beyond Canadian borders. That's how we actually grow the Canadian economy beyond where it is. What role will AI play in helping us to ensure that uh, companies of all sizes in Canada can be competitive, to your point? You know, um, you know, yeah. I mean, if AI is is going to make uh, you know uh, um, companies more productive, it's going to you know benefit society. Then we got to get on it. So it, it it's not like we don't we have we don't have a choice. 
you know, and we kind of, I don't know, the, the, the thing I find uncomfortable with is we talk about AI as if it's like the next coming, you know, like we, we bow to AI as this uh, technology as we're servants to AI already. And so well, the reality is, I don't know, do you remember blockchain? Yeah. Yeah. Blockchain was going to, you know, save puppies and, you know, feed the world and do all these wonderful things. And then what, what happened is, and I remember as a technologist, when blockchain came up, I, I, I went and I said, well, what is this hype all about? What do I, I don't understand this. I need to learn more. So then I read more and more about it. And then I was like, it's just a ledger. That's well, probably pretty good for finance stuff. Yeah. And that's what it's good for. So, and there's other things that we use blockchain for, but blockchain doesn't rule the world, right? So all this hype cycle, you know, that, that is created takes us, is, is a bunch of noise and distraction to take us away from the real important things. And what Terry brought up was the main important thing is really is understanding what data means to you, what data means to your business, how are you gonna use data to benefit you? Those are the things we should focus on as Canadians and focus on in our businesses, and that's when it's gonna bring us success in AI before anyone else does. I see you nodding, Kelvin. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, <clears throat> it's just like the whole cycle of it. Like it's, you have to understand this is a new technology, and it's, um, we've had many of these uh, revolutionary new technologies approach our civilization, and we've learned to uh, uh, leverage it and advance it, but it's not just the, it's not an explosion all at once. It takes time, and there's like different layers of the technology to make it useful. Um, it's it's the large language models are out of the box. They're really powerful. It's quite impressive, but to put them in a product is hard. To make a prototype is easy, and so there's like these steps you have to go through. And as a company, you have to think about how you can leverage these large language models and generative AI in a, in a differential way and how you connect it to your data, your core data or your core services that's different than what everybody else can leverage this, this large language model for because it's open and everybody has access to this technology, which is quite interesting. So I'm going to go to Sean right at the moment. Sean, we got a question from Slido that I think is going to be quite interesting for everybody on the panel. Uh, thanks, Stu. Uh, a question from Richard. What is the most important development in AI that we don't know anything about? What's the best untold story? Oh, you're scratching your head. <laughs> Terry. I'll go with one that kind of keeps hitting me, and if I just had more hours in the day. And I was thinking about my own work and where I sit in a university, and I present courses and do research. But the, the idea of everything that I'm going to do Thursday night, what if they were very good at getting the AI to teach them and they went through the case analysis and they went through the feedback to the work that they'd already done and the AI gave them that personalized experience, then what kinds of questions and what work could we do in the three hours we have in class? And would that be transformative? Or would it be man mundane? And I guess that's, that's my unsung question, is what, what will it be like maybe next year? And that is the magic of this. We don't know, do we? Mark? One of the things that I think is really interesting as we explore these tools is, is the, the, the propagation of them, first of all, and then the way that we're all going to consume them in our totally unique ways. Uh, shout out to my colleague Aya Ladki. I don't know if Aya's watching, but um, you know this is what we were chatting about this today, and she brought up this point, which I thought was was really profound, which is 
you know, you think of, like David's referencing Microsoft Copilot. Well, if I think about management consulting, management consulting is like taking large data sets, pushing that through some type of model, using your deductive reasoning to create an insight, and then packaging that in a PowerPoint. That's like 90% of the job. <laughs> so, so you, so, in essence, are a co-pilot. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, would, we would have thought of ourselves in, in something like that. Now, what was interesting there is, is, is that you know, her point was, which I thought was really interesting, was that I had kind of been thinking about it, this paradigm as if these tools are going to become available to us, and everybody in that job description is going to use them in the same ways. And her point was, which I thought was really interesting, is that you might not be very good at Excel, but you, now you've got a tool for that. That person might be really good at PowerPoint. They don't need that part of the tool. And so as these tools propagate our organizations, we're going to leverage them in our own unique ways. You're going to apply your human creativity to these tools and figure out interesting ways to, to get leverage. And it's not going to be uniformly kind of uh, you know, absorbed or, or uh, leveraged inside the organization. That's really interesting because that unlocks each of our human kind of capabilities and creativities in unique ways that we actually can't fully understand now because you, you can't even comprehend or, or imagine what that's going to mean as you start to push these tools into, into you know, all our amazing capabilities. So to each of you, does AI and all these different applications raise the bottom and make us uh, the base better, but then give us the freedom to explore the peaks? Terry, I see you. Going to chime in on the data. The data says yes. The folks at the bottom, and this is a couple of very nicely designed studies that say the bottom comes up a lot and the top not so much. If you are a great Wall Street Journal journalist, it's going to help. Grammarly helps. It's been helping for years, but it's not going to transform what you do. But if you were not very good at being able to write, now you can do a fantastic job. The, the cold call emails I get from people all over the world are much better today than they were a few months back. Are you pulling out your credit card as a result? <laughs> <laughs> no, you use AI to filter your way through that. Calvin. To that too as well, I think you're totally right. The bottom does get a little bit better. And then the specialist, the specialist who knows the job really well, is not typically going to get that bump unless they really understand how to leverage the AI really well. So this is like being very good at prompt engineering or being able to design your AI agent in a way that helps your work. So there's like another study that talks about like that the specialist doesn't really get that, but if you give them the tools about understanding how to prompt these AIs, how to leverage them the most they can, um, then they still get a little bit of if more efficient. They can get more done in more less time and, and kind of apply themselves to a more broader set of, of tasks. So one of the questions that I have <clears throat> is kind of rooted in a, uh, a comment that came from uh, Rosalind Coonan when I was interviewing her. I don't know if you know Rosalind, uh, a very highly regarded senior economist in British Columbia. And she pointed out, you know, you go back to the mid-1700s, and 70% of the population left the field to move into the city because of modern agricultural practices. And the big concern at the time was, all these people, what are they going to do? Like, there's no work for them. And thus came the Industrial Revolution, and things took off. Well, I think that we're at an uh, intersection that probably potentially is even greater than that, but we're going to see this dramatic shift in jobs. Do we have any idea what the impact is 
going to be on job creation, not job loss. Everybody goes, oh, so I'm going to lose my job. But what's the impact going to be on job creation? Or is it too, for, too early to tell? David. I think it'll be an explosion of new types of jobs. We went through this with the internet, right? The internet was going to destroy many jobs and change many things. And then if you tried to explain to someone in 1998 what TikTok was, what the content creation industry was, how many entertainers would be would be full-time employed creating YouTube content, and then all the layers of marketing and distribution and insights and innovation, it's just impossible to get your head around. Uh, so this, I really think we don't know what we're going to choose to go do. I think generally, though, when you get a technology that eliminates a bunch of work people tend not to want to do, people can head towards what they actually do want to do. And that, that's what I think, Mark, you were alluding to. That is what's so exciting about it, is we're going to find out what people really want to, to, to do if they have the help, the staff. A lot of people are individual contributors in their job, so they're stuck with the work that they're stuck with. And to your point, um, the point about learning to leverage the stuff, to prompt engineer, to figure out what to do with it, I mean, for those of us that are managers or directors, you, know, you had to learn how to delegate. You had to learn how to motivate a staff. You had to figure out what work you were not going to do and how to scale things. And AI is a way to give everybody the chance to not do work that they own and do something better. So that's what's cool. You know, um, I'm, I get hung up a little bit about, is AI purely algorithmic or does it move over into the heuristic end of reasoning namely saying, I'm going to gather bits, enough information to make an educated guess about what could be next. And is that uh, part of the promise, but is it also part of the fear of what AI could be? I don't know. We, we might, this might be the only thing we all disagree on or not, but I'm not sure. But I would defer to the academics in here. However, I don't believe that AI is reasoning. I believe what's, what it's doing is finding <clears throat> patterns. Patterns that you, like look where ChatGPT scraped all its data from, the internet, right? The internet's got some good stuff and it's got a lot of garbage, right? And so what, what, what it's done is it's found patterns and it tries to answer based on these patterns, right? And you talk about hallucinations and all these things it's, and you ask three or four times, sometimes you get a different prompt, the way you ask it. To, to me, this doesn't reason like a human. When I sit down and, and, and look at you, you know, I'm getting all kinds of, you know, physical cues and all kinds of different things, and my mind is reasoning not like an AI is right right now, right? So I, I don't think it's reasoning. I think it's, it, you know, the large language models are doing a terrific job of getting, you know, us 70% there, you know, but it doesn't work the same way our mind works. And, you know, that's further down the road, you know? Sylvain? Uh, I mean, I think I, could, I will... I would agree, Eduardo, in, in one phase. And so, you know, I'm not a specialist of that. So my, 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 my expertise is on AI, engineering, software engineering, and health, but uh, and which this question is more philosophical in some ways. Um, but there is one aspect that, you know, um, some authors are talking about is the notion that could we have a different way to define reasoning? So definitely AI is not reasoning the same way that humans do. But um, I can tell you that when like, I was talking to different models of AI, at least at the personal level, so that would be very subjective, but I'm feeling like, oh, this is really nice how the AI is taking care of me or my need or helping me with my, my job or things like that. So I think there is also a notion where um, 
there is maybe a, a different form of tool that understand you and that create a different relationship with our work, like uh, the other we are defining before, but also um, with the way we approach things. And you know, one aspect of the question that was before is, first is like AI has been around us since you know decades. So you know, nothing is new in AI. Like what, what is new is really like the 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 computational power that allow us to use the model of AI at, at a different level. Uh, but one aspect that could be very positive is like, I don't know if some of you know, but the uh, CAN uh, Amigo, this is like, a, you know, the CAN Academy, yeah. right? So this is like an educational platform that kind of is free for everybody in the world and you can access different content to learn. And they created with the help of ChatGPT, like an interface that could actually help to be a tutor for free to uh, children that want to learn. And when you go into the, so you know, I encourage everybody to go see the platform, but when you go on the platform, you actually can discuss with AI about like, you know, The Great Gatsby or like uh, literature and like AI will discuss with you and understand. And, and, and so this notion there is very interesting to study. So I think there is this notion of how AI is going to change all the industry and really advance technology and product, but also how AI is going to change the other aspect of our life and help us and support us. So, yeah, and the reasoning here is it's quite interesting, I think, because I think that's a really good question. I think human reasoning is much more complex than what AI we have right now, for sure. We have way more senses. We have way more ability to understand the data that's in, in front of us and reason around with it. Now, what's, what's interesting about language, large language models and ChatGPT is they are still a prediction machine. They're predicting the next word in the sentence. Just like we as humans talk, we are, I'm trying to predict what I should say next in my next sentence, what are we talking about right now? And I can do this given the context of our conversation. And what is now interesting with these language models, you can give it context. And that's what it understands as the front half, and then it starts predicting what it should say next, what it should say next. So it reasons very similarly to humans in the, in the world of language and understanding the conversation of what we're having and what to say next. But it doesn't like, it, it can't reason in multiple dimensions that humans can use emotionally, visually, auditorially. And so we're not really there yet, but it's, it's a glimmer of something that's it's quite impressive. Ah, a glimmer. So how, <laughs> how much are we just at the beginning? We've, we're seeing this massive explosion, and we're going, oh, this is pretty good. But I have to tell you, in preparation today, I came across another model that would talk to me. And I went, great. Um, can you design a logo for my company? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Uh, how, and talking. Um, what style would you like it in? I'd like to have it in a 1920s Art Deco style. Oh, that's a very great style. Um, this will be an iterative process, so I'll send you something, and then you tell me what, what you would like. OK. OK. Uh, where is it? Oh, um, I need your email address. Uh, OK, send it to my email. No, it didn't arrive. Oh, that's strange. Like, it's literally talking to me like that. Do you have another email address? Yes. Nothing comes. Well, that's odd. Uh, what platform is that on? 
maybe you should contact uh, the platform's uh, you know, customer service. And I'm sorry that we weren't able to help you. And I went, this is really unfortunate because I was planning on using this example in my talk tonight. Oh, I'm really sorry that we frustrated you and that you're not able to use us as an example. In your... So, so <laughs> it's really good at some stuff, but getting to the point where it starts to become really specific to individuals, I don't know that the individual has the access that you know companies need to bring like resources to say, well, we need somebody who understands this. The same way when apps came out on phones that you had to, uh, David. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> this is, this is, look, Microsoft has a set of published principles about this stuff. AI needs, there's like six of them, right? AI needs to be fair, reliable and safe, private, secure, inclusive, accessible, transparent. The one that's the most interesting in there is that transparency and accountability, right? If we deploy AI, we need someone who understands what it's doing, to your point. We're really used to measuring things in public companies. We need a CFO because we measure things. We need to understand things. There needs to be a C-level accountable person, philosopher, ethicist, however you want to think about it, who understands the significance of what that is doing. Because when you deploy an AI, you're still fully accountable for that product for that contribution to the world, just like they were your employee or some machine. So I think that that's, you're, you're hitting right on the point there, that we don't, businesses can't deploy this like some genie and go, oh, wow, look what it did. They're accountable. You don't. So, so I, I mean, it's interesting because what you did is you, you took a, a consumer beta, right? Everyone knows what a beta is. It's not completed software, right? You took a consumer beta and you took it to the end and it didn't work for you, and maybe if you go back tomorrow and have a cup of coffee and really challenge yourself, Stuart, you might be able to get that logo, right? <laughs> but the reality is, if you're running a business, you don't want to do that, right? right. So that's why organizations, uh, you know, I am CEO of my own software company called Industrial AI, and that's exactly what we do, is we build AI solutions for customers. And throw in your website address yeah, yeah, right and now, and too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reality is what, you, what a, a business needs to do is not use chat GPT to upload your private documentation, uh, everything about your organization, on, to, ask, to ask it for info. What you need is a secure environment. You have to treat it like a product that runs in your company. And then what you can do is you can build the model so that every time you ask for a logo, it's going to give you a logo, right? Not a bunch of crap that you don't need, right? And I think that's really, really important to understand that ChatGPT is really a beta, it's a beta, it's not a product, right? And I think it, you can use it for a lot of great things, but it's not necessarily the way, what you would deploy in an organization, especially in an enterprise. Hang on, Kevin. I know Terry wants to jump in here and then and then work her way back. I'm, I'm just gonna you know, go back to my people piece of this and that what we don't, understand super well because these technologies, yeah, it's going to change after I have that cup of coffee. One day it can do this and the next day it can do three other things that I had no idea and no one no one at that product is necessarily keeping me up to date. You know, I'm reading three newsletters, four newsletters a day to try and have some clue about what changes went on overnight. But the idea that we need to think about how do we put these things together like Legos or like some kind of a, a workflow. And you can see it a little bit when you're using a tool like Bing, where it's gonna say, I'm gonna go off and search for this, and now I'm searching for that, and now I'm gonna start typing some stuff. But then maybe I get to a point where I need to change products. And that's why I am so excited about Copilot, right? Because 
integration of those products is really going to be lovely because I hope it's going to be making some choices for me about which thing comes next, which tool will I line up. So yes, just like when we had phones and apps and we're trying to sort out which app to do what and how do I get this picture I just saw, this story, and get that ported over to my social media, switching from app to app is another thing we've got to be thinking about here in terms of the, that workflow. Calvin. Yeah, I definitely agree with both of you guys. Like, it's, it's really a big engineering challenge as well. When, and I'm excited to see what we can build off of this. Like, there's still a big software engineering and systems engineering application of how you integrate these building blocks and these Lego blocks and put them together and great, great, great products out of it. I think we're at an age where, like, it, right now we're, we've inter introduced a new platform, <clears throat> these large language models, and it's like the iPhone and the App Store, and now we've got to build with it and build products that are valuable and useful for the users, the end user who wants to leverage it, and integrate it with other workflows and software tools we use. So it's, it's, it's like we're at the, the start of something kind of quite impressive. And I'm excited to see what all the startups are going to be doing, what's going to be released, and, and what people are going to build out of it. Mark, I saw you jumping in a bit there, too. <laughs> so many great points. What a great conversation, first of all. Um, a couple, you hit on it earlier, right, which is this idea of you know, prototypes are easy, relatively easy to stand up. Enterprise applications much, much more difficult. We have that conversation all the time with clients. You would have a discussion with them. They say, oh, well, we're experimenting in the corner. We're already doing six of these things. Like, holy smokes, with what? Like, please don't tell me you're putting your data in there. Like, what, you know, what are you actually doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we are incredibly early on the generative AI topic, right? I mean, as we've been mentioned earlier, the AI has been building for a long, long time. But on the generative AI topic, we're very, very early. Um, I was, the last couple of days, uh, Meta released their most recent um, you know, headset, right? And I don't know if, for the folks in the audience, uh, if you saw the early versions of like Zuckerberg in, his, in, the, in the Meta demonstration, it's like a cartoon character. It looked super blocky and it was like, oh my God, I can't think of anything worse. And all of a sudden, they released the updated version and it's like, photorealistic, you're watching the person's face move, it's dynamically updated, et cetera. In other words, the technology is increasing exponentially. And here, what's really interesting with generative AI is, as we're all interested, so your, your example with uh, you know, your logo is, you're teaching the tool. And so when you come back, the tool is learned based on the interaction that you've had. And that's a big difference from, you know, so, I'm, I'm not a deeply technical uh, you know, engineering person, but you know, the difference historically was that uh, the people that were building the software would understand how Users were using those tools, take that information back, and they would release a new version, right? And then, oh, it's a little bit better, because well, these, these updates are happening dynamically as the models are learning based on how we're interacting with them. That's why you combine that with this incredible user adoption, the fastest technology ever to, you know, in terms of a, a user adoption. It's, it's very, very early and very, very difficult to predict how cool it's going to become as the, as the tools improve and the use cases get unlocked. Sylvain, thoughts from you, and then we're going back to a question from Slido. I mean, like we, we like Dave, so many incredible ideas here. Like this is difficult to um, to put them all together. I think like one one aspect that we didn't talk about is is maybe like um, you know this aspect how AI is going to transform the economy in a way where uh, you know like right now we have all those big models that apply to you know ads economies or like to search engine or to those 
you know, multi-million uh, dollars kind of uh, market. But how are we going to be able to transform or AI is going to be able to create companies for, like, you know, the pizzeria down the street or, like, the shop that, that sell clothing uh, at the corner of my street. Um, you know, like, how are we going to be able to really... I think this is where there is another opportunity for AI to really create and uh, accelerate the economy for us. Is how are we going to be able to create those products that are going to be applied to different types of, of customers, like small business enterprise. Um, I think that's also part of the next phase of the revolution of AI. Well, I hope it comes really quickly, not, not, not at the speed that uh, designer medicine has come at. So, since the, uh, the mapping of the human genome, I'm still waiting for it. Uh, and, and is there a little bit of too much hype around what AI can do for everybody? Maybe it's a little bit more uh, specific to larger organizations that we can benefit from the applications there. Sean, Slido. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An interesting question from uh, Sydney Redpath. What skills do managers need to develop or environments do they need to create for teams to learn and utilize AI in their work? Good question. You touched on that a little bit earlier, David, so let's start with you. Sure. I mean, we, what I would say is you need to incentivize it and, and feed it, nurture it uh, very, very intentionally. We do hack weeks. We have whole weeks where the staff stand down and just do self-initiated projects, and we massively incentivize them to go build AI tools and explore. We've had a, we had an entire dedicated AI week for the staff to just play with models and try tools and try things. So I think you need to create a safe space to learn. It really is... Um, uh, a form of play. You just need to go play. You need to play and experiment and, and see what they do and get comfortable with it. And if you can have that sort of mindset, so you need to create a psychologically safe environment for your employees to learn. So that's human beings doing it. It's not ma the machine that's doing it that we're so afraid is going to take over that function. Well, well, at this point, I think there's enough hype and pressure and, and so on that people are afraid, I don't know how to AI. Right, so that they, they, they don't want to go do this thing. And I was like, no, I mean, you know, for those of us that grew up with, I'll date myself here, but grew up with, you know, Sound Blaster 16 in the 90s, you know, we've been talking to chatbots. I think, when was Dr. Spatzo released? I don't know, maybe 97, <laughs> something like that? So you're talking to a chatbot, but I also play video games and talk to characters in, in Skyrim. So you, you just need to get in there and play and, and not have any particular outcome in mind to just in an open and, and learn kind of what this tech is. I don't know how to AI. I love that. <laughs> you know. I, think, I think I love Dave's, uh, uh, Dave's response. Uh, you know, and, and I think if you're a software company, that, that's the way you do it. If you're not a software company, I think what, what you need to really do is, is, is look at your organization and understand what your, what your data is supposed to do, what data you have control of, or what is your, define the data language in your company. Then be specific with your team of where to experiment and what tools to experiment with and to do it in a safe way. Because what, what I don't think is good is for non-software companies to go, just use ChatGPT. It'll be fun. You'll learn things. And so what I've seen in, in my experience is, is people go, oh, I did this generative model with this house because I don't want to take a photo, like a real estate company, I don't want to take a photo of this house, so I use this model. And then I look at it and I go, that gable is different than what's over there. I know, but it's almost correct. Well, but it's almost correct, but you would never use it with a customer. That's true. But you blew, you know, an afternoon doing it. So, you know, I really think that there, you need to be more strategic and you need to really understand, like, it's kind of what Terry said at the very beginning. You really need to understand what it means for your business and then 
figure out uh, a way to go and experiment on that business need. And that's grow that within the company and then allow people to play with it. But uh, with the right tools that uh, speak to the business. You know, that's a really interesting point. I think that uh, so much of the hype is about what's the existential threat. These machines are at some point going to just be able to exist without us. I actually go, well, is the biggest threat or the biggest challenge with AI is that we're all expecting too much of it right now and that we're going to invest a whole bunch of time getting mediocre results and saying, eh, I don't know, and then stop paying attention. I see hard, heads nodding down the, down the, the line here. I, I definitely agree with you. And like setting expectations is something I deal with a lot of times when I'm working with my uh, clients, I guess, in the bank. And setting expectations of accuracy and what to expect of this. And also, you know, AI has been around for a while. And when we apply it, we apply it to a, a narrow focused task, a narrow focus area. Right now, we're talking about this like generalistic AI and how it can solve all our problems. And I think that is unrealistic to think about that right now. We still got to think about that narrowly focused target or a target problem to apply it to. And we either fine tune it, we, we supply with new data, and we, we focus it in on something. And it's not at a, it's not at the stage where it's just going to solve all our problems. Uh, it's like how do we how do we uh, how do we leverage it and put it into into a real problem space where we can you know use leverage its power. Can I bring an idea from the 1950s? Oh yes. All you right. Can go back even further if you want. <laughs> yeah, 1950s is a good start generally for me. And you said target. And if we think about how we apply this either top down in our organization or bottom up in our individual work, thinking about what is the target I'm trying to do, and all of the ideas around how do we experiment are going to have value, whether you're talking about an AI resource or something else. So what a great opportunity for us to all upskill in our work experimentation. So keeping in mind that target, and then having a little stop, look, listen moment where you're going to say, you know, what, what do I know? What do the people around me know? Where, where are our weaknesses? What are the tools that are available to us, AI and otherwise? And then what are the techniques that we need to use in our organization? And then how do I, how do I align all of this? So, you know, the idea is that there's no one way, there's not going to be one perfect way of doing that job or getting that product to market, but I want to know what my baseline was so I can see how much better off I am or not, and I want to understand the flexibility that if adding that technology and that technique didn't play out, how do I adjust it and try again? And to get that into our work regardless of whether or not it's AI. Uh, like, I, what, what you're talking about also makes me think about um, the other part of the equation of the AI. We didn't talk about that because there's so much talk about AI, but data. And Eduardo, you talked a little bit about that before, but like, that's almost the most important, right? Like, so data is even more important than the algorithm because without good data or without like, specific data, like, nothing works. So, I don't think we can separate those two. So data and the AI is very <clears throat> crucial. So one of the questions that I have is, okay, where does all of this computing power reside? Like what are the size of the data banks that have to exist? What's the power draw? Um, 
we know that NVIDIA's stock has gone through the roof because they've got the processor that is so fundamentally important to pushing this all forward. If everybody suddenly jumps on the AI bandwagon tomorrow, is there capacity? Well, fortunately, <laughs> I don't think that those kinds of workloads are gonna happen anytime soon. I think they're gonna be very specific with uh, certain organizations on, and certain tasks. But the reality is that most organizations are not ready to use AI for you know, what Sylvan was alluding to, which is the fact that you have to have your data organized, you have to have proper architecture, you have to have proper data governance, and then you need the use case. And once you get all that in line, then you go make, make some, uh, some AI products and benefit from AI. So I think in the, in the short run, what's happening is everyone's panicking and NVIDIA's doing really well, Microsoft's doing very well, you know, so all these guys are doing really well, and then what's going to happen is, uh, you know, people better be adopting this thing pretty, pretty fast or they're going to have a lot of empty space and, uh, and, and are at the beginning of this hype. So I, I predict that it's going to be a little slower than we think, and I don't think we'll hit that, uh, that capacity yet. David, I see you agreeing. Yeah, I think the market will price all that in. But to answer your question, if every single one of us wanted to outsource all of our daily thinking to GPT, no, there's not enough compute on Earth to, to take over everybody's workload of running their life. Uh, you know, the market prices that in, and, and people play with GPT some, and then some people pay a monthly subscription to play with the higher level models, and then you have people that have a business need to come to Edo and have something actually crafted, and then you have the, the big stuff uh, for enterprise. And so, no, I think it, it will find its, it'll find its level, and I think we'll find it very normal. You know, computers are now in our lives, and we flexibly apply them and use them in ways that make sense that are very nuanced, and we don't even think about it. But there was this sort of existential idea of like a computer in the home, a personal computer at home, what will happen? I think we're gonna go through that curve again, and it will. It'll find its level. You'll use AI a bunch, but you won't try to force fit as much maybe as you are right now, and you'll find the places where it really gives you a, a benefit. Aren't I already using AI in my latest version refrigerator? Your Probably. Phone. Your phone, for sure. Yeah. Sean, can we go to the next question here from Slido? Absolutely. Uh, there's a question here from David. Uh, the godfather of AI warns that we should hit the brakes on AI. Uh, I note here any of that uh, caution on the panel tonight. Is that something that we should be concerned about? Oh, we had to turn to the, you know, let's be cautious uh, side of the, uh, the question, of course, because we are asking friend or foe, what causes you concern? And I uh, answer from everyone, we'll just come down the road. Calvin, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I think we should be cautious. And then we definitely should be cautious with new technologies and how to uh, leverage them safely. However, I don't think we should stop because the cat's already out of the bag. It's like it's not, you, we can't stop uh, the, the development. So we will continue to move forward. But we should have to think about the responsibility and an impact of what AI can have. Just like any new technology, like atomic energy in the past, there's going to be these uh, existential crises and, and like how we think about this new technology in a way, we have to approach it responsibly, how it affects our data, how it affects our daily life, how it might affect our, affect our work, but also weigh the ultimate side as well, like what, what benefits does it give too. So it's, there's, a, there's definitely a middle ground. There's not like, I think there's one or the other, but you, you have to you know, navigate these, these pros and cons and complexities as you develop and as you build. Mark? 
I think probably the most one of the most important questions of the evening. Actually, that sits behind all the all the excitement, right? Um, I mean, three kind of premises for for any enterprise uh, AI application: of scalable, repeatable, and governed. David touched on it earlier. This idea of you know how do you think at a at a sort of C-suite or board level about what these uh, applications are doing? Incredibly important conversation. Uh, Canada's wrestling with legislation, as are all the major jurisdictions, and it's it's going to be an important part of the conversation. The folks that are building want to push. You know, th this is one of those places where the move fast and break things crowd doesn't really actually like it doesn't work here in some ways. And the and the builders want to move fast and 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 push the boundaries as they should. That's that's what that's what pulls us forward. But at the same time, we live with regulation in all all kinds of areas of our our lives. You know. Hundreds of thousands of airplanes uh, take off every day. We manage to coordinate that. There's safety regulations around how they're built and maintained and so on. The same thing you know, should be true here. The hard part is that uh, you know, we live our lives certainly locally and then nationally, uh, and you're dealing with something that is global, right? We can barely agree on a global stage uh, you know, about important things that impact us all, like climate change and so on. You know, we can hardly agree that the sun rises in the east around certain topics, right? And so that's one of the things that we're wrestling with is where, does, where should that sit? Uh, how, should, how should we be governed? What, you know, that these are hard questions to grapple with, which we're very, in the very, very early innings around, uh, but incredibly important to do, and that's, that's where we're going to find where those boundaries are, uh, and that's where we should be building too. Terry? Yeah, the one rule I have about uh, the students in my courses in terms of their AI use is do not upload your company's data. So that, that's the one hard one I put in. On the other hand, we have, we have laws, we have civil penalties, criminal penalties around the use of people's images, the use of people's intellectual property, and I think we're going to have to come down hard on exemplars of that to make very clear where boundaries are in our civil society. So the idea, I think it was Tom Hanks today that says, no, I am not a shill for this dental company. You know, they made it up. All right, I want to see something happen about that so that people do know that there are boundaries, but it's boundaries around their use. It's not about boundaries around the technology in that instance. David. Yeah, to the author, that, that's a great question. I think um, the optimism or sort of the energy here for, for myself comes from a starting point that is completely about safe, secure, and trustworthy AI. Like, those are the values we have. And I'm, I'm fairly optimistic because the... You know, Brad Smith is the president of Microsoft and he has an AI blueprint and talks a lot about Microsoft's AI values. When I see the, ADA, the AI and Data Act that's being authored by the federal government and a lot of these frameworks that are coming together globally, I keep an eye on a lot of them, it's not wildly dissimilar. I mean, human values are fairly aligned against what we want. We want something that makes our lives better, but then you get into all these different shades of unaccountable uh, compute, harmful compute, you know, if it's discriminatory, if it's not inclusive, that's not okay with anybody. No one wants that sort of a thing. So I think that, that, that to a marker, whoever made the point that, you know, you're not putting the toothpaste back in the tube, it's, that's not possible. This is sort of where programming is moved to. We can now work in this, in this space for making technology, but we simply need to do it from leading with those kinds of values so that we can be optimistic. Um, and I think that you, you're, you're right that, the creative act, all the, the creation of pushing things forward, 
needs to be backed by some real enforcement around what remains bad behavior. And you don't have to burden the technology with that, you know, every day. But. You know. There are uh, far more concerning things going on in society today than, than this, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I, just the, the remark earlier about climate change, we can't even agree on that, and there's really good science on that. So, um, so if, if we look at, at this, I really believe that if the cat's out of the bag, you can't pull things back. You have to now proceed with caution, and, and uh, you know, the software community that builds technology has people that do really good work, and we have standards, and we have ways of doing things, um, and there's always gonna be somebody that does something bad, and uh, that's just what happens when technology evolves. Do we think we're gonna be in these life-threatening situations anytime soon? No, will we down the road? For sure, right? But, you know, uh, to stop, to, to me, means, uh, uh, is very short-sighted at this point. Yeah. Sylvain. Well, I think we all agree on that one, so, uh, okay. but uh, one, one aspect that I think we didn't talk about, I think that's one of the role of academia. I think that's the role of academia to um, think about those issues related to new technologies, how those technologies can enter the society, what are the impact of those technologies in the society. So if, you know, like I think that's part of the development that we have to conceive in parallel to, uh, to the, the technological boom, meaning it's great, we should create product, we should advance, I don't think we should put brakes, but I think we should for sure advance of understanding of what those product means, what those new technology means for our societies. Um, you know, like for example, like a few years ago, there was a big debate on uh, AI tools and, and racism and how those AI tools were trained with databases that don't represent our societies. And then after that, we're creating uh, um, terrible things behind it. So I think those aspects of all the social science that are uh, done in academia should prevail and should advance also. So those kind of like a two mechanisms at a time. The technology has to advance, but also our understanding of the impact of the technology at the social level is very important. Yeah. Okay, agree. We're not hitting the brakes now just because we're afraid of what might happen. But building in emergency brakes is important. I think Edo made the point that emergent, dire things could come of these systems. And so the sensible thing is to build in the emergency brakes. So if we do hit something we couldn't predict, you do have a way to, to just decouple instantly. And so that's just good, good governance. Well, this is a perfect time then for me to introduce a clip that we have from Minister Brenda Bailey, who has the great distinction of being the Minister of Jedi, which is jobs, economic development, and industry, but it's, it's so perfect. Samaya, can you please roll that clip from uh, Minister Bailey? What we're seeing is actually um, uh, some uh, excellence that is being developed in regards to industry and AI, which I find really interesting. Mining AI, forestry AI, fisheries, oceans, sociographic AI. I, I think of it as almost like wine when you develop terroir. Uh, that's also true in technology development. And you see that in British Columbia, you're seeing our industries reflected in the type of AI we're developing often. When I talk to my friends and colleagues about AI, sometimes I hear about people's fears and they're quite a bit different than the fear that I hold in regards to AI, which is about how it impacts equity seeking people. And my favorite organization, the Algorithmic Justice League, has been writing about this for quite some time, 
Uh, folks might have seen the recent article in the Rolling Stone that interviewed these extraordinary women, black women who've been uh, addressing these challenges. Uh, things like how re uh, facial recognition uh, is very different if you look like me or if you are a woman of color and what the implications are. doesn't mean a lot if you're trying to unlock Facebook. It means a lot if a police force is using it for identification and you spend a weekend in jail or you can't pick your kids up, for example. Um, I'm also concerned about uh, a recent article that I read that identified that um, in identifying tools that can assess whether an essay is written by AI or an individual, uh, it's disproportionately catching people who are new Canadians um, who have English as a second language, who in fact wrote the essay, but it's being identified as AI. How do we solve for that? Good question. She brings up a couple of very interesting points, and they're real-world examples. Um, so with AI, does it still always run the same challenges? What are the inherent uh, perspectives of the people who write the code? Um, maybe I like add what Davis says. You have, you have values when you're building the software, and you have to approach the software development uh, development lifecycle with these values and principles in, upholding of like we were going to release something that's unbiased and we were going to release something that's safe and as safe from adversarial attacks. And so when you go to go build this system, say a facial recognition system, you have to sh ensure that your your data sample has a, a, a distribution of uh, people that's representative of, of the world. And so you have to address the bias from the get go you know it's going to be, and, it's, and, it, and you have to address it within the data. So uh, as a developer, you have to you know, approach these questions first and then build the system with them in mind. Does that not then come back to the point is the data? You have to have the mass of data that's required to be able to come up with uh, accurate models. Um, yeah, I mean, you, massive, it doesn't always have to be massive, but I think the quality of the data set is important. You know, it's, um, I agree with Calvin, uh, you know, said you need to um, approach it by, uh, you know, des designing it first, you know, instead of, you know, just throwing it out there, uh, especially when you're, uh, when you're creating a product that may contain a bias. But the challenging thing is, you know, uh, when you think about AI, AI is a multidisciplinary sport. You know, it, it started off computer science, cognitive science, philosophy. Um, biology are all disciplines that created AI, right? And w way before we, you know, all, all the stuff we're talking about today. And so, which means it's really connected to the human. And then we're all humans, we're all innately biased, right? I mean, we're all just, that's, we're, we're not perfect, right? And I think in society today, we're learning a lot about our biases. And we're maturing as a society where we are learning how to be, how to look at a problem and, and not be biased. And it's very difficult. How do we expect to make a machine do that if we can't do it ourselves? So I think it really comes to the very beginning. It's the human that's, in, that's creating and building these technologies that needs to uh, have the desire and the attention to build technology that, um, that speaks to that. And I think that's, that, to me, is at, at the heart of it. You know. So we're, we're going to run out of time really quickly here. Um, and the question was, AI, friend or foe? A closing remark from each of you about what is the one message that you would like viewers and those of us in the audience to take away tonight 
based around that question of technology friend or foe? And my answer to the question is yes, it is a friend, but it also can be a foe. But what do we need to understand about the answer to the question? Sylvan, so I'm going to start with you because I've been coming down the, and I'm going to jump around, okay? okay that's a tough question you give me, like, um, <laughs> to start yeah, with, show right? us, show us Thank how you it's, very much, too. <laughs> show us how it's done. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, I think the point is of the whole conversation, for me at least, is um, we, we, we seem to be all believer in, in AI and, and its possibilities. You know, we probably influenced by the hype, you know, like, like everybody will be because as it, Ido was saying, like we are human, so that's totally true, I think. But I think there is a point more that is like, we can make AI our friend. And this is our decision, how are we gonna do it? I think the, the race of AI is is not a national question or provincial question. It's a worldwide question. So it's not a question of like, oh, should we stop AI, should we do, no, this is not even a question for us. Uh, just, just in terms of security, for example, right? Uh, but I think the point is that I want to make it, I, I believe that the point of AI or how we're gonna be successful in AI is if we all work hands in hands like the industry, the government, the academia, the not-for-profit, we have to work together uh, and br break those silos that we have uh, to really focus on how we can make AI our friend to help humans. So you almost see it as being an opportunity for us to bind together with a common objective. Yes, totally. Yeah. Mark. Well, you've sort of stolen my thunder ever so slightly. I would, say, I would agree, it's, it's both. So the, the answer is yes, right? Um, you know, if you're doing the type of work where an AI will easily replace you, you are probably sweating ever so slightly. Um, so there's gonna be some disruption, but there's also tremendous opportunity. For any organization that's looking to experiment, I would say you know, that you, you need to begin to form those kind of skunk works projects to, to experiment and, and see where it can apply in your business. And for the, you know, the folks who are um, you know, listening and thinking about, well, how do they do it? it it's a little bit like, um, like personal computing or, or the internet was in the early days. You kind of don't have an option, I think, to sit on the sidelines. Part of the story is to, to experiment and see what's possible. Um, you know, we, the, the, the joke inside corporations, right, is the, the old guard that would like come to a meeting and get the secretary to print out their emails, right? Well, the last of those sort of characters have, have sort of exited the workforce and this is gonna be similar, right? You, we're, it's gonna be part and parcel of how we do our, our jobs. Uh, our job is to be curious, ex experiment, explore. Um, and one of the things that I'm really heartened by is that all the sort of the undertone of this whole conversation has been raised many, many times across the panel, right, is this idea of doing it responsibly. So, you know, before Alphabet was, when, before Alphabet was Google, right, the, one of the core tenets of their uh, corporate ethos was don't be evil, right? And that was sort of underlying the folks that were building technology at a core level all the way through. It just hasn't sort of filtered to the people who are on the street because we weren't interacting with the technology that way. This is different. Uh, you know, we, we, it's much more hands-on and we're all participants in the story as well. And so to me, one of the things that's really great is to hear the conversations around what's the implication of the decisions that we're building? How do we think about the bias that's inherent in the models? How do we address it? How do we make sure that we have, you know, as Minister Bailey was describing, right? How do, you know, equity, access, inclusion, and so on. These are all really, really important tenants of, you know, what we're gonna, what these solutions are gonna become. So. 
from that perspective, I think it's it's a, it's a really exciting time, and and I feel really positive about, uh, you know, eyes open, but positive about where we're going. Calvin, um, I would definitely agree with uh, what has already been said here. Um, so, friend or foe, I think it can be both, and it's up to us as we are all participants in this change in regulation and how we use it, how we build it. Um, how we think about it. So I, I think it's it's on us to understand the technology a little bit and understand how it can impact us, how we can leverage it. Just like like technology in the past, like like you said, like understanding the computer, the internet. Same same thing applies here. Um, if you are educating yourself about it, how you can um, work with it, or how it might work against you, uh, you're better off positioned to to create it as a friend. And uh, I think we all have a, a piece to play in, in creating that like opportunistic or opportunity that, it, it, that is in front of us with it. Ido. I knew you were going to ask this question. Um, <laughs> I made a video game 20 years ago called Spider-Man Friend or Foe. And at the end, Spider-Man was your friend. But it was confusing along the journey. So I think for... <laughs> Did you play that game, too? Uh, and so... so I think really what I w would love people listening is, is the first thing is stay calm, right? N number two is uh, I'm not a fan of AI. I'm a fan of technology and the advancement of, of humankind. And so I'm going to say it's a friend. And, uh, and what uh, the other piece I'd say to ev everyone listening is just be curious. Ask a lot of questions. There are no stupid questions. Keep asking questions. Keep learning. Keep ed educating yourself. And this dialogue that you've created here is what we need to be doing. It's talking about real things that are happening today and continue to talk about it. And then we avoid the faux trap down the road. That's, yeah. Mm. Terry? All right, I'm going to stick to my world, which is the bottom-up aspects of AI, and I'll leave the top down to the experts on the either side. And I'm also going to go back to the initial data, and we've heard it mentioned a couple of times that the folks who are over 55 were less excited about the AI being part of the, the environment. And I would say, if we think about AI as being an intern that we've been offered, and not a very experienced intern, this is their first internship, then it may be that those with less experience are not as good at figuring out how to work with that intern, how to manage the intern, how to help it develop, whereas those who are in the above 55 crowd, they've had a lot of interns throughout their careers, and if they maybe take that perspective it may not be that either the younger or the more experienced folks are better at it, but they're certainly going to come after it with a different perspective. And there's an opportunity if they share those perspectives. You know, I worked with my intern today, and this is how it played out. How did you do? <laughs> you know, and getting that sharing. So as I said, I don't think we can let laggards be laggards. I think we need anyone in this room, anyone listening is already interested. Look to the person who is less interested and take it upon yourself. See it as an obligation, your civic duty, to help them a bit. And maybe if you lay it out in terms of this is like an intern, for at least the bottom-up uses, maybe that's going to be the one step, the one little nudge they need to really transform how it impacts them. And David? So the answer is yes. 
but allow me to push back on your framing because you made it very, you sort of, friend or foe includes the intention of the person wielding this thing. I would say that it's, it's like tools and weapons, right? Like this is the question. I pick up a piece of steel, am I gonna plow the ground with it or attack somebody with it? It's a tools and weapons framing. And, and I would say that it's top down and bottoms up. Um, but it's a whole of society conversation as well, as many people have made the point. Um, so one person isn't going to decide, here's how all the software works and AI is going to do things to a bunch of Canadians. I, I did a session with a, the technology leader at a big Canadian company. They're rolling to go a bunch of AI and this person went and thought deeply. It leads to you know very boring things like governance frameworks and PowerPoint slides with 50 colored boxes on them. But what it means is he thought deeply about the impact of every aspect of inclusiveness and accessibility and transparency and accountability through everything they were going to do. That's top down, great governance. All the staff at that company have to be trained on these AI values. They have an intention that you know they're trying to do good with this stuff. And then to Brenda's point about the nuances, someone's not just going to, and Calvin's point, not, not just going to say, here's how this shall work. This will be fine for people. We build a lot of AI harms reporting features because there are too many nuances to even just begin to imagine how everyone will experience all these outcomes when we let and so you have to be customer connected work with that customer as well there's a three-part relationship but but I would say it's it's a tools and weapons question and I think Canadians have good values people are engaged with this and uh, and I think that uh, you know I'm, I'm optimistic that 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 we can do the right things with it well, I'm wildly optimistic about life in general uh, despite the fact that at times people will say, uh, you're a Pollyanna or you're naive. I don't think so. I actually think to be optimistic means that you have to also take into account what the negative side is. And one point that we didn't touch on tonight but was shared with me by Minister Bailey was there's a shipbuilding company here in British Columbia that has done everything it's supposed to do to try and help build out the uh, labor force around welders to build more ships and they can't get enough welders. But where they are able to now get enough welders is those people who know how to do welding exceptionally, have been trained in running robotic AI machines that can do the work of 10 welders, and the company is now in a position to be able to attract the work that it couldn't get before because it didn't have the labor force. And I think that that is probably one of the great promises, but the challenge, is that with AI, it's so new, we can't really even envision what it's going to look like. To your point, uh, each of you, earlier in the evening, who could have predicted what the Internet did for us? Who could have predicted, like, so many things that were uh, brand new, uh, transformative technologies, and they've changed our world? And so I want to thank all of you for your time tonight, your insights, and your optimism because I remain enthusiastic about what the challenges are and I believe that we can address the shortcomings. So thank you very much. Yeah. And to those of you online, thank you for watching. Um, please come back and join us next week, October the 10th, for our second in uh, our series for this year, Workplace Accessibility, where we have an extraordinary panel that will address issues that prevent so many people from being able to realize their potential because of biases or opinions or misconceptions about giving them opportunities in the workplace. Thank you to everyone, thank you to our sponsors, and thank you to those of you who joined us in the audience, and especially to our panel. Good night.